Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. This is our sixth episode, and I want to describe something that occurred this week with me in federal court. I had a lengthy sentencing this week in federal court in New York, and I walked into the courthouse and had my regular mask on, the type that I've worn for the last, I don't know how long, couple of years, however long it's been. And I was told that I couldn't wear that kind of mask. It just was your typical surgical mask. Instead, they pulled out a very uncomfortable, one of those N95 masks that looks like a cone. You know, you look like heckle and Jekyll when you're wearing it. And it's incredibly painful to wear, especially for two hours while you're speaking in court. And you've got this thing basically muffling your face. Anyway, apparently being triple jabbed is now not enough to protect me from others or, I suppose, protect others from me now in a federal court. And wearing your regular mask isn't enough. Now it's a special mask you have to wear. Now, what occurred during that sentencing was I learned, I didn't even know this, that my client had not been vaccinated. And, of course, he had to wear the same N95 mask as I was forced to wear, yet he was treated exactly the same way that I was. And when the court learned that my client wasn't vaccinated, we were forced to sit six feet apart, which meant in the middle of a federal sentencing where there's all sorts of questions coming up, I was unable to speak to him. When I finally couldn't deal with it anymore, needed to actually speak to him, I asked for a five-minute break, which the judge graciously gave me. But I wasn't permitted to speak to the client inside the courtroom because I had to remain six feet apart. So I had to go into the hallway just outside the courtroom, and there I was able to speak to him two inches apart. Of course, none of this made any sense at all, and you know this is just how it is in post-COVID New York. And it's nice to see that after, it's about a year since the vaccination was starting to be given out and we were told we were going to get back to our normal lives. And now I'm actually more regulated in New York than I was back then a year, three vaccinations ago. So I suppose what I want to know is why is it that I'm the problem? I've been triple vaxxed. I thought it was that only those who aren't vaccinated are the ones who, you know, who hate their communities, hate their friends and family, and needed to be separated and shunned. Apparently, I'm exactly the same as them because I'm treated exactly the same inside a federal courthouse. Oh, and by the way, in D.C. now, if you want to enter any restaurant, hotel, movie theater, bowling alley, gym, any sporting event, you need to be vaccinated if you're 12 years or older. By the way, 54% of blacks have received one dose of the vaccine in America. So basically half of blacks in America cannot eat in a restaurant in D.C. or go to a movie. Think about that. Anyway, as we're ratcheting up the restrictions, removing the freedoms a year after we were told our lives would be back to normal, even though it's clear that nothing is really stopping or slowing the latest COVID variant, this Omicron, even though Omicron has a 91% reduced risk of death compared to the Delta variant. And we're acting as if this is the first coronavirus that occurred two years ago. It's exactly the same, even though it's 91% less deadly. By the way, over the past six months, deaths from COVID in New York went from about four per day to now 230. In Florida, where there are no mask rules at all, no masks, deaths went from 27 a day to 77. And no one speaks of COVID in Florida. No one changes their lives for COVID there anymore. They're not doing anything differently on COVID than you know what we're doing here in New York. They're just doing it better. Somehow they just do nothing and things are working out. We're doing everything and things are falling apart. And of course, you know, you're going to have to explain to me why, and the bottom line is why we are losing our collective minds in the liberal areas of the country. That's all. Anyway, so this, this actually segues into Joe Biden. And the question I want to ask just to start is how are we better off now than we were a year ago? I'm not going to go into all the reasons why, but I want to know, are we better off now than we were a year ago? Just this past week, this was a bad week for Joe Biden. Inflation hit a 40-year high, 
and it's really starting to crush the middle class. Grocery stores, oftentimes you find, have empty shelves. You can't buy a new, uh, a new car very easily. You certainly can't order one and get it quickly. He lost the Supreme Court at the Supreme Court with the vaccine mandate and the testing mandates for large businesses. That was knocked out. Two Senate Democrats have made it clear they will not support his voter rights legislation, which would mandate national mail-in ballots, same-day registration, early voting. So he lost those two. So that's the end of that. More Senate Democrats came out and are refusing to help pass his overhaul, the filibuster rule, which requires 50 votes plus that uh, cackling imbecile Kamala Harris to pass any legislation that he wants which is basically the Voting Rights Act that he's pushing. And he called anyone who opposed it, George Wallace and Bull Connor, famous racists. So you're a racist if you don't agree to uh, not agree to the filibuster change, which has, I don't know, been in place for a zillion years. And on top of all that, his approval rating is 33%, and he's been in office for less than a full year. Think about that. This is a guy who supposedly received over 80 million votes, more than any person has ever received in any election in the history of this country. And he's at 33% after one year. Can you have a worse first year? I mean, (laughs) it's crazy. But anyway, the funniest part to me of all the shit that he's done and there's a lot of funny shit, is his continued ass-kissing of the terrorists in Iran in order to get a watered-down nuke deal. I mean, he's basically begging the terrorists in Iran, the worst Muslim terror state in the history of the world, for this deal. And this is why I really hate Biden so much and, and why I hate Democrats so much, because they'll sell us out so quickly to Muslim terrorists, you know, who frankly deserve to be bombed to the heavens by now. I mean, what's the point of nukes if you're never going to use them? I mean, that's just, you know, maybe that's just me. And I know that people are are tearing their hair out hearing that. But every month, by the way, Secretary of State Blinken, he issues the same like comically limp dick threat about reaching a deal with Iran. This is what he said. Uh, And time is, uh, is running short. This is what we hear every month. Time is running out. We'll be looking at other options if if we don't reach a deal, meaning, I suppose, bombing them? I don't know. Is that what he's threatening? It's you know very scary, these threats. And let's go over the timeline. June 25th, 2020, when these are actual headlines from the internet. June 25, 2021, Blinken warns Iran, time running out to revive nuclear deal. July 29, 2021, Blinken warns talks with Iran can't go on indefinitely. September 8, 2021, Blinken warns U.S. getting closer to giving up on Iran nuclear deal. October 13, 2021, Blinken warns Iran time is running short on nuclear deal return. December 14, 2021, time is running out. Blinken says clock is ticking on Iran. January 14, 2021, now we're like, what, six, seven months into this? Blinken says a few weeks left to save Iran nuclear deal. (laughs) They're laughing in our faces. I mean, their responses to our threats, by the way, we're threatening them every month and they're not doing a damn thing. This is what their response is. Well, Let's see. Just this past week, their terrorist proxies in Iraq, well, they fired rockets at our embassy there. That's how much they're worried about Blinken's threats. There were, there were some injuries, some damage, no response from America. Iran did that. At the time, we're supposedly claiming that they want to negotiate in good faith with us. They're bombing our embassy. Oh, what also occurred this week? The supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah, he put up a video on his official website depicting the assassination of Donald Trump. You know, he's just a former U.S. president. You can hate him, liberals. You know, just because you hate him and you want him to die anyway doesn't mean that it's right for a Muslim terrorist leader to threaten to kill an American president. And the video was entitled, Revenge is Inevitable. And that was in response to Trump taking out their mass-murdering General Soleimani. And again, any response from America for this video for an an abject threat against a former American president? Nothing. Not a peep. But who did the White House get angry about instead? Well, 
Donald Trump. That evil ginger freak, that lying freak, Jen Psaki, said the following. Now listen to this. Listen to how easily debunked this is. Quote, none of the things we're looking at now, Iran's increased capability and capacity, their aggressive actions they have taken through proxy wars around the world, would be happening if the former president had not recklessly pulled out of the nuclear deal with no thought as to what might come next, she said. Because of the last administration pulling out of the nuclear agreement, Iran directly attacked our partners in the Gulf. So it's all because of Trump. I mean, this is just fucking lies, man. Damnable, easily debunked lies. Are you saying that Iran was not involved in any proxy wars before 2018 when Trump pulled out of the nuke deal? I mean, is that what you're saying? Hezbollah, Hezbollah, that was, that was founded in 1985 with money and training by Iran. Okay. That existed before 2018. In 2014, when Obama was in office, uh, Iran's proxies, the Houthis, launched a civil war in Yemen. In 2015, Iran set up a bomb factory in Bahrain where it was planning terrorist attacks. The next year, the Philippines foiled an, an Iranian plot to hijack a Saudi plane. 2016, the Houthis attacked Saudi and UAE ships as well as the Riyadh airport in Saudi Arabia and a Saudi palace. Their attacks on Saudi Arabia continued in 2018 when the nuke deal was in place. In fact, the deal that Obama reached with them lifted sanctions on Iran. It freed up more money for them to funnel to these proxies. What happened when, uh, when Obama gave them more money? By re not only releasing money, but giving them money. They increased their support for the Houthis and for the Syrian leader Assad, who, I don't know, what did he do? Kill 600,000 people and he gassed many of them? That's what they did with the money last time. All that shit occurred before Trump tore up the nuclear agreement with Iran. So Jen Psaki is just lying. Iran also tested ballistic missiles. They seized U.S. sailors. Remember that? They humiliated them on the boat and they had it all over the world. Video of them with their hands behind their backs. Iran harassed U.S. Navy ships dozens of times. They attacked a U.S. ship. They fired rockets at Israel. You remember rockets at Israel? You remember who Hamas is? The Muslim terror group that, of course, is the elected leadership of the psychotic terrorists in Palestine. Of course, you need a leader, so who do you elect? You elect a bloodthirsty Muslim terror group. Well, they are paid by Iran. They're paid by Iran. And they launched thousands of rockets at Israel. All the time they launch them. Did they only launch them when there was no nuclear deal in place with Iran? No, they launched them throughout. So they're threatening to kill our president. They launched rockets at our embassy in Iraq just this week. What did we do in response? We allowed South Korea, we lifted sanctions to allow South Korea to send an Iranian company $63 million in cash. That was good. We've already relaxed sanctions on their oil industry. Their oil output was up year to year, 28% from this summer. 28% increase in oil output. That means more money for terrorism. It was at a 40-year low in 2020 under Trump. Their people were starving. There was rioting. There were protests in Iran. What did Biden do? He did all that he could to take pressure off Iran. And what was Iran's response to Biden giving him that favor? Well, they thanked him by giving money and rockets to Hamas, which then sent thousands of rockets into Israel in May. And of course, many Democrats blamed Israel for that. It wasn't, of course, Hamas's fault. It wasn't the Muslim terror group that's killed Americans' fault. No, it's Israel's fault, and they tried to pull aid from Israel during that. Not Iran. Iran never gets blamed for anything, just Israel. Anyway, they have such little respect for Joe Biden, for America. Even this, last week, the president of Iran's Wrestling Federation said death to America in a television interview, and it was an interview about a February wrestling match that's going to be between the national team of Iran and the U.S. team in Texas in February. So they're coming to America as if we're, we're giving them this offer to come to try to show some peace between nations to allow them to wrestle here, and, and their, their head of their federation says death to America? 
How about fuck you back? Why do we take this shit from them, from these terrorists? When Iran heard that America may not allow the head of the Wrestling Federation in Iran to come to the U.S. in response to this, Iran's foreign ministry spokesman, Saeed, I can't even pronounce his last name, just presumed that it's a bunch of consonants in a row. He said, we should not politicize sports. Okay, that's what Iran says. We should not politicize sports. Think how dumb. He's as crazy as Jen Psaki. Saying death to America before a wrestling match isn't political? Refusing to let your wrestlers face Israeli opponents isn't political? If you're an Iranian wrestler and you wrestle an Israeli in the Olympics, your entire family gets arrested and you never get to wrestle again. That's how stupid these people are, how savage they are, how brazen they are. They'll say anything. And Iran knows full well they can do anything and, and anything they want, and they won't be attacked militarily. I mean, what, what more can they do to us? They've killed Americans. Even Donald Trump didn't attack them, even as he had another hawk, Netanyahu, Israel's Netanyahu, in charge there. Somehow these two guys, Trump and Netanyahu, with all their big mouths, all their bluster, did nothing militarily to Iran other than targeted assassinations and Israel bombing the crap out of them in Syria. But nothing happened inside Iran other than the assassinations, no attacks. They're launching rockets and bombs from their proxies all over the Middle East on us, on our allies, and they're allowed to just have complete safety inside Iran? At least Trump starved them. At least Trump did something, which is more than anybody had done in a very long time. Now, while we're speaking about Muslim terrorists, the Iranians, we should probably talk a little bit about the Texas synagogue hostage situation. And that was where a Muslim terrorist walked into a synagogue and held four Jews hostage, including the rabbi. And he demanded the release of Afia Siddiqui, who is a Pakistani scientist, and I put that in quotes who's a member of Al-Qaeda. The FBI and Justice Department described her as an Al-Qaeda operative and facilitator at a May 2004 news conference when they warned that there were going to be upcoming Al-Qaeda attacks, possibly in America. In 2008, she was detained by authorities in Afghanistan, and they found some interesting things in her purse. Now, women carry all sorts of shit in their purse. I mean, some really outlandish stuff. And I suppose what she had isn't really uh, too surprising. Two kilograms of poison sodium cyanide, handwritten notes that discuss the construction of dirty bombs, and also a list of various locations in the United States, such as the Statue of Liberty, the Brooklyn Bridge, and the Empire State Building. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that all you women, I'm sure, carry in your purse. While she was being interrogated by American authorities, she grabbed a rifle from one of the guards and shot at them, screaming death to Americans. Now you're thinking, well, this can't possibly be true. How could this poor uh, you know, woman, who's such a decent person, such a kind, uh, peace-loving Muslim, uh, feel this way? This has to be false. Well, at the age of 21, she bragged to her student friends in America that she would be proud to be on the FBI's most wanted list. Of course, nobody said anything. In 1993, she told her friends that she wanted to, be, uh, wanted to do something to help out our Muslim brothers and sisters even if it meant breaking the law. She also did a 10-hour NRA shooting course in Massachusetts and urged other Muslims to join her. She gave speeches saying that Muslims should, quote, get training and go overseas and fight. Naturally, again, uh, America gave her uh, scholarships to MIT and Brandeis to uh, leftist uh, universities where she was educated and we uh, made her a PhD in neuroscience. Wonderful. In America, the place that she wants to destroy. Now, she's currently serving an 86-year sentence in a prison in Texas. And during her trial, she demanded that every jury member get DNA tested to see if they were Jewish. I mean, that's some pretty hardcore anti-Semitism. Her position was, well, if they have a, this is quoting her, if they have a Zionist or Israeli background, they are all mad at me. They should be excluded if you want to be fair. Now, after she was convicted, she stood up in court and raised a finger and said, this is a verdict coming from Israel and not America. That's where your anger belongs. She refused to speak to her lawyers and tried to fire them. Why? One reason. Jews. After the trial, she wrote a letter to then-President Obama. Quote, study the history of the Jews. 
they have always backstabbed everyone who has taken pity on them and made the fatal error of giving them shelter. It is this cruel, ungrateful, backstabbing Jews that have caused the, them to be merciless, mercilessly expelled from wherever they gain strength. That's why Holocausts keep happening to them repeatedly, if they would only learn to be grateful and change their behavior. Now, she did say, in fairness, that she didn't hate all Jews in America. She did thank the Dean of Brandeis, a Jew who let her get her PhD there. And that's what us leftist Jews, excuse me, not us, that's what leftist Jews do. They get nachas. They feel so prideful when they can help out Muslim terrorists. I mean, it makes them feel good about themselves. Now, of course, Linda Sarsour, the typical Jew haters, care, that wonderful civil rights uh, Muslim organization, all the usual Jew haters said that Siddiqui was simply caught in the war on terror and was a political prisoner who was wrongly accused through flawed evidence. And they demanded her release. And this is like recently, this is like last week. Now, the FBI, this I found interesting, claims that the terrorist who took the Jews hostage in the synagogue in Texas, in an effort to gain the release of probably the most Jew-hating terrorist in existence, was, quote, specifically focused on an issue not directly connected to the Jewish community. I mean, who could possibly believe that horse shit? This is the same FBI that remember when a black race car driver saw an innocent rope pull in his garage stall? Remember that? You know, that pull that's in every race car driver's garage stall? That they claimed instantly without an investigation was a hate crime. But what the Muslim terrorists did inside a synagogue while trying to get the release of a Muslim terrorist who hated Jews, not a hate crime at all. Now, this is the part that I found interesting. I saw this uh, on the internet. The rabbi who was held hostage, now, of course, naturally, he's a liberal. He has three names, because you can't be a liberal unless you have at least three names. Three, four, three is really the most common uh, if you're a leftist Jew, and also if you're a psychopath, John Wayne Gacy, John Wilkes Booth, you know, things like that. Anyway. He apparently called the rabbi called Israel an apartheid state. He signed the letter to the Israeli government criticizing their actions in the West Bank. So a lefty Jew who agrees with all the terrorists uh, who say this about Israel, who also, by the way, wouldn't allow his congregants to arm themselves inside the temple, didn't want any guns there. So this is the kind of pathetic leftist Jew that an armed Muslim terrorist held hostage. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Liberal Jews, man, they're worse than Muslim terrorists in my book. As far as I'm concerned, give me a Hamas operative next door to me instead of a liberal Jew. At least the Hamas operative tells you what he is and he doesn't lie about it. He hates you and wants to kill you. The liberal Jew, he's slapping you on the back while he's sticking a knife into your back. And I found this interesting that has not been investigated by the media at all. Why did this terrorist hostage taker insist upon calling a New York leftist rabbi, a Korean woman, of course, you know, if you're a leftist rabbi, female, you're Korean, why not? Why did he insist upon calling her during the ordeal? Why? What's the connection there? Her husband, by the way, the rabbi, the female rabbi in New York, is a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. I sure would like to know what that connection is. Why is it not being investigated? Why isn't it being talked about in the press? Well, I'm sure they're going to get to it. I'm just sure of it. Now, after this quick break, we're going to go into a case of mine, a really fascinating case with a client who was convicted of molesting four young boys, basically sentenced to a death sentence, and how I got him out. I'm going to go through the detail of it. It's a very interesting story. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. This is Jeffrey Lickman back for Beyond the Legal Limit, and we're going to talk about a case that occurred in New Jersey. And it starts in about early 2007. I received a call from an old family friend. He was actually a friend of my parents. He was a very older man, and he's calling me. I haven't spoken to the guy in 30 years since I was a kid, 40 years. I don't know. 
And he tells me that his driver had just gotten convicted. He had a couple of businesses and his driver had gotten convicted in Newark of this horrible crime. And he wanted me to take the appeal. Now I get calls all the time from friends and family. You know, you got to help this person. You got to help that person. And I listen. And then he told me what the charges were that the man was convicted of molesting four little boys, all brothers. And you can guess my reaction was uh, nausea. And he, he said to me, you know, he heard that I was not thrilled about it. And he said to me, look, just just go visit the guy. Can you just go visit him and you'll see that he's innocent? And I'm like, right, okay. And, you know, but I didn't want to go. But I, for some reason, I guess in 2007, I still felt obligated to do things uh, for people when I really didn't want to. But I did it. So I'm driving down there and I called up my uh, partner on many cases, Mark Furnish, who partnered with me on Gotti and he actually wrote the Chapo Guzman appeal. And I say to him, can you believe that I got to go down and see this, you know, this guy's convicted now of child molesting, you know, four little kids and I'm complaining and and Furnish just like lights into me, which is hilarious. Uh, Who are you not to represent a guy accused of molesting kids? Like he's worse than the serial killers you've had, the mafia bosses, the drug dealers, you know, the white collar guys who steal zillions of dollars and their victims are, are killing themselves after they're wiped out financially. And he was right. Um, you know, this is how lawyers are. You know, we're guys who would look down at me, lawyers would look down at me for representing someone like this guy or Chapo or Gotti or the alleged boss of the Colombo family now. They're just full of shit cowards, truthfully, lawyers. And to them, it's all about money. And they try to cover it up with their, you know, that they're representing uh, people that are above people like this. And, of course, they're representing fraudsters, as I said, whose uh, victims are killing themselves. And they'll virtue signal publicly. It's all virtue signaling. And, as I said, they'll represent a billion-dollar fraudster. It's all about money for them. They'll never take a case to trial. Very, very rarely. They just suck the life out of clients. So he was right. And I'm going to give you some examples. Lawyers who represent female victims of sexual harassment or assault and are constantly talking about women, women, women. Well, they secretly represented Harvey Weinstein. Lawyers who were constantly championing, uh, championing women's rights have represented Trump. Lawyers who've blasted Trump publicly then represent him a few weeks later. It's all about money. There's no personal beliefs in here. It's just this bullshit harum thing. And that's fine. You know, if you want to do it for the money, that's fine as long as you do your job. But don't come out publicly and, and talk about, you know, all your virtue. I don't want to hear that shit. And here's one for you, a trailblazing woman lawyer who sued Trump all over for all these sex assaults. Well, it comes out secretly. She was also representing Andy Cuomo and attempted to smear one of his sexual harassment accusers. At the same time, she's chairwoman of Time's Up, this organization founded by Hollywood women to fight sexual abuse and promote gender equality. And she was the co-founder of its uh, legal defense fund. Of course, she had to step down once it was revealed that she's smearing women because of Andy Cuomo. Because liberalism is more important than anything. Let's be real. I mean, but you see how this works. The white collar lawyers who claim that they're above it all. It's just about money. They'll do anything for money, but it's just about money. So to look down at someone like me who'd represent a mob boss or even a child molester, But as I said, it's okay to represent the fraudsters and Andy Cuomo at the same time you're talking about women's rights. My position basically is lawyers should represent anyone if they can work out an agreement with the client. You can't pass your value judgments on to who you represent. They're all charged with crimes. It's all bad. You know, stop the pontificating. We're all here for one purpose, and that's to defend the Constitution. Stop acting like you're better because you're not. If anything, you're cowardly because you never go to trial. All you do is uh, go on LinkedIn and pat yourself on the back and smooch prosecutors' asses. Anyway, I digress. So I end up going to the prison, and I think it was Essex County Prison in Newark, and I'm basically seeing a, a white guy in a completely black prison convicted of raping four black kids. So you can imagine uh, his future in prison. He's not going to be lasting very long because those kind of people get killed in prison. So I figure I'll see him for five minutes and, you know, do my duty and get out of there. He had a public defender at trial, and I assume that there was no money there because, you know, who would hire a public defender for a case that if you lose, you're going to die in prison? 
So I go in with the really the lowest of expectations, and, and he was just terrified in prison. It was like uh, going to see an animal who had been beaten every day, like you could barely coax him out uh, you know, from behind, underneath the door. He was like a trapped animal, literally. He was so happy to see me, but you could tell real fear. And as I said, I've seen this kind of thing before, this type of fear. And it's, it's sad to see because this is still a human being. But at the same time, he's accused of molesting four small boys. And I had two-and-a-half-year-old twins at the time and not really far from the age of the kids he's accused of molesting. So you can guess that I, I had some real uh, mixed feelings. You know, I listened to him, I suppose, you know, with, with one ear. And the case was bizarre. I'd give him that. It was a one-day trial, a hundred-page transcript, the whole trial. And the testimony was simply just the four boys. That was it. It was just the four boys who were testifying. And there was also a child abuse investigator who explained how she coaxed the four boys to tell her the story. And now, of course, he gets convicted instantly after that. The whole case was a day. And he was represented by a public defender in Newark. So I, you know, I'm listening to this. And finally, I, I just said, look, what was the problem with the case? Just tell me. I don't want to hear it. Just tell me what the problem was. <clears throat> Not that he's the sole determiner of, of what's wrong with the case, but I hadn't read the transcript yet. I couldn't check to see if there were any legal or procedural errors, but I wanted to hear from him. That's why I was there. And he tells me, well, I had three witnesses who were actually there during the, all the time they claim that I molested these kids. And all the witnesses said that I didn't do it. And my lawyer didn't call them. And I'm like, what? All of a sudden, I'm like, what? How could this, how could this be? So I, I can't believe it because it just can't be. I asked him who the witnesses were. And he said that two of them were uh, living in a house with him. And they were there all the time. And, you know, this made me think they were a little suspect because of their women living with him. They obviously have a good relationship with him. So they could certainly be shown to have a bias built in. Who was the third woman, I asked? Well, it was the aunt of the four boys who lived next door to him. And she claimed that all the boys lived with her the time this happened. She was aware of everything that they did. And she claimed that the boys never complained about anything that occurred at my client's house. And they were over there all the time. And she also said that the boys always came over in groups. The boys that testified, they came over one at a time and got raped by my client when they were alone. But she said, no, I never let them go over one at a time. It was always in groups. And the kids also testified that they went to sleep when they slept at night in his bedroom. And she testified, she would have testified, that the kids all slept in the living room when they slept over. And that's what they always had told her. And that's what she had always seen. <clears throat> so I asked him, why hadn't the lawyer called them as witnesses? I mean, that certainly would have been enough to, uh, you know, convince a jury. And in my mind, at the same time, it certainly would be enough to convince a judge that a public defender was incompetent and that the conviction should be vacated. So he tells me that his lawyer didn't even speak to the women, but he could prove that he had told the investigator on the case and the lawyer about them. So I'm like, you know what? All of a sudden, uh, I'm okay with this case. You know, the fact that if there's child molestation, it's all out the window. Why? Because I think I can win. Now, the in order to get a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel, it's a two-part test. And it's set out by the Supreme Court in a case called Strickland versus Washington. It was a 1984 decision. The holding in the case is that a defendant, in order to show deficient performance of trial lawyers, you have to show deficiency and also resulting prejudice. In other words, the first part requires a showing that counsel made errors that were so serious that, in essence, he wasn't really functioning as constitutionally guaranteed counsel by the Sixth Amendment Constitution. And you can't just show that the acts of omissions or the acts of commission were simply the result of reasonable professional judgment, like strategy. You can't just say, well, the guy's strategy was really, really wrong. You can't say that. That's not enough because you're allowed to strategize and make mistakes. The court must determine, basically, in light of all the circumstances, if the lawyer's actions were outside the range of what's determined to be reasonable professional competence. 
And there's a presumption, by the way, that every decision that a lawyer does make a trial for a defendant does fall within that, you know, very wide range of reasonable professional assistance. But I still felt that with the, what he was telling me that this, this was going to work. How do you not call three witnesses that completely counter what the witnesses in the trial said? So I walked out of prison, and of course, I called Furnish up the first thing as I'm driving back. And now I'm screaming and yelling in the car because I'm taking the case, because I'm going to win it. And, you know, naturally, my 180-degree uh, reversal made him laugh in my face. And he, he laughs at me a lot uh, in cases. And I'll get to that in another episode about trying to make Furnish laugh during trials is, is one of the goals. Anyway, so I read the transcript when I got back, and it was like 90 pages long. And as I'm reading it, I see so many bad things. The lawyer did almost nothing in the case. He presented no witnesses, no medical evidence to suggest that the rapes didn't happen, even though I later found medical reports that existed showing that the boys, some of whom were anally penetrated, showed no bruising, no tearing, no bleeding, nothing when they went to the doctors. Nothing. And that's just not how it is. That's just not what medical science shows. And he made nothing of the many inconsistencies in the boys' testimony. Their testimony was inconsistent with each other. It was inconsistent with video statements they had made that came into trial. So the jury saw and heard all the inconsistencies. But for some reason, this defense lawyer didn't make a big deal of the inconsistencies uh, during the cross-examinations. And when the trial was over, the judge has to then give what's called the jury charge, has to explain the law and how the jury is supposed to judge the evidence. She has to give them instructions is what the jury charge is. And twice she asked him whether she, whether he wanted, the, this is the lawyer, he wanted an inconsistencies in the witness statements rule that's read to the jury. She was going to give this jury instruction. She asked him if he wanted, and twice he said no. Finally, she just like lost her shit on him and said, quote, I shouldn't have to do your work for you, especially since I brought it to your attention. It's obvious that the inconsistencies were there. It's like the elephant in the room. I have to talk to the jury about it a little bit. You know, you give an instruction. Basically, the instruction is if you find that one of the witnesses or any of the witnesses have statements that are inconsistent with each other, you can determine that they're lying. You can also determine that they're not lying, but you can determine that they're lying. And that's sort of common sense. And the transcript was so bad. It was so bad. And it was really a sad case as it was. One of the boys actually testified, mommy trades us for cigarettes meaning that the boys were given to my client in exchange for cigarettes. I mean, it just was the most pathetic case. So anyway, in order to get started on this, I had to call the so-called exculpatory witnesses up. These are the ones who supposedly would testify that the sex assaults couldn't have happened. You know, to in order to ensure that we had a basis for ineffective assistance motion, we had to make sure that we had witnesses that should have been called and would still be called now if given the chance, and that their testimony would change the verdict if they had testified. And that was really the whole case. So I was listening to him, my client, and I'm hoping that what he's saying is the truth, but we had to call the witnesses up. And incredibly, they were all solid. They were all willing to give us affidavits as to what they would have testified to to help the client out. And some claimed they weren't even contacted by anyone on the defense team. <clears throat> some said they had been. They Actually, all of them said they had spoken to an investigator, but then it just stopped. They just never received a follow-up call. They weren't called to testify. And we nailed all of those down in affidavit form. And I spoke to the investigator on the case. And he had stopped working on the trial a few months before it actually went to trial. And he had forgotten about the case. It was now, you know, a bit later. And he confirmed that he knew about all these great witnesses, and he told the trial lawyer about them. <clears throat> and the trial lawyer knew that they were great witnesses, and he didn't even know the investigator that these witnesses never testified at trial. He assumed that the trial lawyer got in touch with them and put them on the stand. He was shocked. So I got an affidavit from him as well, and he agreed to testify at the hearing for me. Then I tried to call the, the trial lawyer up to discuss the case with him. Now, Look, it's an uncomfortable situation when someone brings ineffective assistance against the lawyer for the work they did, but the lawyer is still expected to help the defense if they actually made mistakes. Because look, if you make mistakes, just own them. I mean, you've got a guy here who could, you know, die in prison 
And you're going to what? You're afraid to admit that you made mistakes? I mean, what are we doing this for if not to help get people out of jail if they were legally wronged? So, you know, I can understand if a client is going to lie his ass off about you and accuse the trial lawyer of misconduct, which never occurred. And then in my mind, all bets are off and the lawyer you should not have to protect the defendant anymore. He should protect himself. So I called the lawyer up to try to gently discuss his incompetence. Not that that's an easy call. And as you can guess, he never returned the call. And I'm calling and calling, no returns. Didn't return emails. He eventually returned a call with my associate. It was very brief. He basically made it clear he wasn't looking to help. You know, he wasn't looking to hurt, he claimed, but uh, it was pretty clear he was going to be doing the bare minimum, which was pretty much what he did at trial. But I wanted the file. That's really what I wanted. I wanted his entire file, and he promised to get it to me. So we get what we get from him, and it's pretty clear to me that it's not everything. It's stuff that he possessed, but it wasn't all the reports. It was, you know, maybe half. We put our motion together, and I was fairly certain that we'd get some play from the, you know, you have to go to the trial court, because I've got three witnesses that completely counter what the four witnesses testified to at trial. And I figured at the very least, the judge would give me a hearing to put all this on the record and to find out exactly what happened. And if the court found that the trial lawyer's representation fell below what's, you know, the reasonable standard, I'd be able to go to the second prong, which is to put the three witnesses on the stand, show what they'd say, and say to the judge, you see, there would have been a different result if these witnesses had testified. And then that would be that the conviction would be vacated. But first, we had to get to the sentencing. And this is now in June of 2007. The client has been in jail. He got remanded after he was convicted in January of 2007. And the sentencing was as ugly as I assumed it would be. The prosecutors asked for 150 years, and I had really very little to say other than the fact that I thought the defendant didn't get a fair trial, and the judge was, you know, just not, you know, feeling it. It was clear to me that she was angry, understandably so, and I simply said as my reasoning at the sentencing is, look, as bad as the actions were that he was convicted of, the kids are still alive, and I know this is, you know, not a real sensitive thing to say, But I said, well, what do you do to the guy who comes in front of you who raped and murdered four boys? You're going to give 150 to the rapist, and what, are you going to give the killer 250 years? And that's really all I said, and that's not exactly a very politically correct thing to say, but I'm trying to make a point with the judge, and it worked. And she relented, and she only gave him 27 years, but the truth is, He was dying in prison. There was no way a guy like this lasts 27 years, and he didn't seem to be doing all that well six months later. So we put our motion to vacate into the trial court, and it sat for seven months. It just sat, seven months. Finally, we get a decision at the end of 2008, and this judge, the trial judge, would not vacate the conviction and wouldn't even give us a hearing. And I was completely blown away. I was stunned that we couldn't even get a hearing on this? It's like, what is the downside? Are you that desperate to salvage this conviction and make sure that this guy dies in jail? I mean, I guess I understand your anger, but you're a judge, man. You know, you have to try to be fair even when there's really ugly shit in front of you. And it just made no sense. The, the, The trial lawyer didn't even submit an affidavit in response to our accusations, our criticism for the prosecution. The judge was just really just papering over all of it by denying it. It was pretty clear to me. So we had to appeal her decision to the appellate court. And, of course, the client remains in jail during the whole time. In March of 2009, we filed our appeal to the New Jersey Appellate Division. So now, you know, he's been in jail, I guess, for it's about two years. There was oral argument, and it wasn't until January of 2010, like nine months later, that we got a decision. And this is now three years after he's in jail. The trial court's decision was reversed, but only in so much as I was going to get the hearing that I wanted you know, years before. And I would get my chance to examine this trial lawyer. And to me, man, I was thrilled just to be able to get my hands on this guy. And I knew that the longer that it went, the less he'd remember. And I knew that he was lazy. He didn't do anything for the trial. He wouldn't do anything for this hearing. I was pretty sure of that. So I prepared for the examination with the materials that he had given me and the public stuff, the transcript and whatever I get my hands on. 
<coughs> I knew that there was so much more that existed, but I also knew that I had these witnesses that he didn't even know apparently existed, or maybe he knew and just didn't do anything with them. So my thought was I'd get to the hearing and I didn't want to say anything about not getting the full file because I wanted to get a crack at him first without the full file. Why? Because I wanted the opportunity to ask the judge, look, I still haven't gotten all these materials. I'm going to need a second day. And that would give me two cracks at him, which was a pretty big deal. And it was also, you know, clear to me because he hadn't responded to all of our requests. He, he just, he was so lazy that I could just tell from reading the the transcript of the trial and the way he was treating uh, this hearing that, you know, there was no way this guy was going to be prepared. Uh, the, The negative part was the fact that since we had gotten the affidavits from the witnesses that we were going to be calling, it's now years later. And now I'm trying to call them to tell them, look, we got a hearing. There's been a reversal. We got a hearing. You need to come testify as to the second prong of the, the Strickland test. And guess what? Couldn't find some of them. Couldn't convince some of the others to come. They didn't want to come anymore. They were done with this. They, they were done. They wanted to get on with their lives. So now what's going to happen if during the hearing – the court found that I satisfied the first prong of the test, namely that the trial lawyer's performance fell below a reasonable level of competence. <clears throat> and then I was required to put on witnesses. <laughs> I was going to completely have to just wing it. And, you know, my thought was like, you know, what am I going to do? I don't really have a choice. I can't tell the judge I'm not going to go forward. So the hearing began and, and, and I was really ready to set the table, so to speak. As I said, I wanted to nail him down for how he made decisions not to call these helpful witnesses, if he even remembered them. But I didn't want to dig in too deep unless the judge wouldn't give me a second crack at him. Because I knew that when I got the materials, I'd be able to dig in more and he'd be locked into these answers. Anyway, that's exactly what ended up happening is that I did get the second crack. I saw the trial lawyer before the hearing started, and I asked him for the rest of the file. And now, of course, he's very friendly with me now that he has to see me face to face. He said, look, I turned over everything that was in my computer, but I left the public defender's office, and I don't have the file in the case. I don't have access to it. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Well, you know, I'm telling you now. You're going to have to subpoena it. So I'm like, fine. I get into court, and I tell the judge the problem that I've got to subpoena half the file, from the public defender's office that this lawyer, the trial lawyer, didn't get it for me. He didn't tell me that there was this issue. And she says, fine, you know, go ahead, put him on the stand. And, you know, if you need more time, a second day, you'll, you'll have a second day, which was perfect because the first day was really ugly. And this is what came out during the first examination. The trial lawyer claimed that he represented the client for a year and a half before the trial. He saw the client maybe once or twice during that entire time, an hour each time. So maybe an hour or two in a year and a half he spent talking to the client for a case that he would die in jail if he gets convicted on. He admitted that he was carrying probably 200 serious felony cases at that time, 200 as a public defender. How could he possibly put any time in with my client? There's no way he could have. And stuff comes out during the examination that you never expect. You know, when you have a guy like this on the stand, you can be really prepared, but you know he's going to say stupid shit, and you just jump on him anytime you have an opportunity and just squeeze more of it out. Here's some of the things that came out. Question. So you had two court, you had two court appearances, and you had two appearance, excuse me. So you had two appearances at your office with him for approximately an hour, and during those two hours approximately of time, you discussed the entire strategy for the defense. I was trying to point out the fact that, you know, you had to prepare for this trial, you know, your your theory of defense, and you must have had to do it during those two hours you met with him in the year and a half. This is his answer. Well, the entire strategy would have been discussed pre-trial during jury selection. Think about that. He actually testified that he did his trial strategy during jury selection of a trial. How do you prepare for a trial when you don't even begin to think about trial strategy until you're actually picking the jury in the case? During jury selection, you're supposed to be thinking about jury selection. He's thinking about the strategy then. You pick jurors based on your trial strategy. It was the most insane answer I could have ever imagined. I couldn't have drawn up a better answer for the defendant. In addition, he admitted that he had never been to the crime scene, which was the client's home. 
No pictures were ever taken of the crime scene for the defense. He mistakenly testified that three of the kids were living in foster care at the time of the alleged sex assaults. In fact, they were living next door. He testified that he thought three of the witnesses, the witnesses that we had, the ones that we were going to use, he said, well, they weren't fact witnesses. They were actually character witnesses. I'm like, what? They weren't going to testify about the facts that occurred? He said, no. Uh, they were character witnesses, if I, I recall, and I was afraid to put them on because if I thought that I put them on as character witnesses, the prosecutor would ask them about sexual, the sex assaults of the defendant. <laughs> it didn't make any sense because they were not character witnesses. And regardless, I said to him, well, let's just assume that you thought they were character witnesses and you were thinking about calling them as character witnesses. Did you ask the judge for what's called as a motion in limine in advance of their testimony, and you get to make a determination whether the prosecutor could even ask such witnesses about the sex assaults, the alleged sex assaults? So did you even make that motion? No, no, no. But like, as I said, regardless, you have three witnesses that are fact witnesses that were there when all this supposedly happened, and his reason to not call them made no sense because they were character witnesses. It was insane. As far as I was concerned, this thing was over. And then he lied and claimed that he was still considering calling them as defense witnesses, but he didn't because he thought the trial was going so well during the one-day trial. Except I got him to admit that he never added their names to a list of persons who are read to the jury at the beginning of jury selection. Basically, when jury selection starts in a case, you've got the entire a pool of jurors sitting in a room. And you say, look, this is what this case is about. Here are the names of all the witnesses, the defense lawyer, the prosecutor. If you know any of these people, raise your hand, because if you know them, you may have a bias and we may need to get rid of you before we even start this jury selection. So you tend to give every witness that you may call, even if they're long shots, because you don't want to have a problem later during the trial, you bring in a witness that you weren't naming at the beginning, and the guy raises his hand, and he's like, oh, I hate that guy, and it ends up hurting your case. You want to get all that bias out at the beginning. And, you know, he said, well, no, I didn't put their names into that list. And I knew because I read the trial transcript, and the list of names were read to the jury. So anyway, it didn't make any sense at all. So he was trying to make, it was clear to me what he was trying to do. Everything was trial strategy. Everything was trial strategy. Anything he could do to save the conviction. This is a defense lawyer. It's like, dude, calm down. And he was so over the top, trial strategy, trial strategy, because he knew what the law was. That was the only bit of law that he knew. And then he said, well, I never actually interviewed those witnesses anyway. I said, well, how are you going to call them even as character witnesses? He said, well, I never met them. I said, well, who met them? Just the investigator. I'm like, what? He says, yeah. I said, you, you don't meet witnesses that you may call and put on the stand? You don't even meet them before you put them on the stand? No, I let the investigator do it. And then he told me that one of the witnesses, the reason why he definitely didn't call him was because the witness was in a drug rehab. And it wasn't true. He was confusing this witness with somebody else. And regardless, he claims that, well, this witness didn't want to come and testify because she didn't want to lose her spot in this drug rehab facility. And of course, the investigator later would testify that this witness was desperate to testify, but was apparently never contacted for the trial. And by the way, she was never in any rehab facility at all. So I finished the examination part one, and I insisted upon the full file from the public defender's office, and it took me months to get it from them. When I got it, I found all the investigators' reports, which said exactly what the investigator had told me, that they had all these great potential witnesses who would be helpful to the defense, and that they were all inconsistent with what the witnesses, the kids testified to. And it was completely inconsistent to what the lawyer had testified at the first hearing. So part two of the hearing occurs months later in August of 2010. The client had been in prison now coming on four years and somehow had survived, but he was, you know, falling apart. And the second part of the hearing, as you can imagine, was so ugly is now I had real ammunition all the investigator reports, all the hospital records, all the medical records. And I got the trial lawyer to admit that two of the four boys had claimed, two of the four boys that had testified had claimed that never came out of trial because they kept it out, that my client had raped his goddaughter who actually lived with him. They claimed they were there, that they had witnessed him raping this little girl. 
Now, I learned this earlier from the investigator, and he said to me, look, she'd been examined at the hospital, and, you know, there was, it was clear that she had never been raped, you know, physically. In addition, she was prepared to testify. She was one of the witnesses, said that it never happened. And this lawyer, I have all these medical records of the goddaughter that showed that no rape occurred. She was willing to testify that it never occurred. But somehow, somehow, this doesn't come into evidence. Think about it. You've got four kids that are testifying. Two of them test, were prepared to say that he also raped this little girl. Just like I saw him rape me, he raped this little girl. But then the medical proof and the girl could have come in at that point into evidence to show that the two of the four boys were absolutely lying. It would have just destroyed their credibility. And for some reason, he didn't put it into evidence. It just makes no sense. You could show that two of the four boys didn't know what a rape was or were making stuff up. (laughs) How could they be trusted about their own testimony about what they claim happened? And as I said, there was no question that she wasn't raped. Medical evidence plus her own testimony. So I asked the, the lawyer during the hearing, He says, I've never seen this medical report. I said, it was in the file. It was in your file. He claimed, well, I still wouldn't have put her on the stand because I don't think I would have been able to get that medical report into evidence. I said, you wouldn't have been able to get it into evidence? How? If the boys are testifying that the little girl was raped by my client, how could you then not rebut their testimony by showing not only is she saying it didn't happen, but objective Medical proof showed that it didn't happen. It just made no sense. He just kept saying trial strategy, trial strategy. It was just total bullshit. I then got the trial lawyer to admit that he wouldn't call the mother of the goddaughter. He said, why? I said, why didn't you call her? Well, because she had cancer and she died, which she did have cancer and she did die. And she was prepared to testify that everything was kosher, that, that her daughter had not been raped, had never discussed anything like that. And I then had asked him, why didn't he use a New Jersey court rule that allows you to memorialize a witness's testimony pre-trial to use it at trial in a videotaped deposition if they're sick and they won't make it to trial? He had no answer why he didn't do that and didn't even know what the rule was. And then the records from the file, it was clear from the investigator's reports because he interviewed this cancer-stricken woman and she was desperate to testify, but he never followed up. And I just took a shot because he was so lazy at this point. I asked him if he knew today what the New Jersey law was that would allow such a deposition to take place with a dying witness. Because you want to memorialize that testimony and play it at trial if the witness isn't going to last. Question, what is your understanding, if you can, of the New Jersey rule about memorializing testimony prior to a trial due to the illness of a witness? Answer, what is my understanding of it? Question, yes. Answer, I don't recall what my understanding of it was. I know I inquired about it. Question, what's your understanding now? Answer, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is now. I don't remember. I don't recall. It was clear to me that he had prepared for this hearing as much as he prepared for the trial, which was zero. He was a complete zero. Finally, after 40 pages of this second examination, and it was just a bloodbath. It was just one bomb after another onto his head. The judge calls us to sidebar. Now, keep in mind, this was the judge who had denied my initial motion for a new trial without even giving me a hearing, and I then had to get a reverse, so I figured she was pissed at me at this point. We all come to sidebar. As soon as we get there, she says, I'm vacating this conviction. This is so bad, I'm vacating it. The two of you can figure out how you want to go forward. Go to lunch if you want to together, but I'm vacating it. And then she said to me, put the investigator on the stand after the trial lawyer, make your record, but I'm vacating this conviction. Now, keep in mind that we still had prong two, that pesky prong two of the Strickland test for ineffective assistance. I had proved prong one, that the lawyer's representation fell below a reasonable standard. But wasn't I supposed to put the witnesses on the stand at that point? But I didn't have the witnesses. I didn't have shit. I didn't have him. The prosecutor naturally caught it, and he says to the judge, he has to put on witnesses. You can't uh, vacate the conviction. And I'm sitting there just frozen. The judge said, nope, the affidavits were enough for me. I've seen enough. It was like 
you turn around, you're looking for like candid camera, Alan Funt to come out from behind something. I couldn't believe that I had gotten away with this. I never had to put the witnesses on the stand. And I had saved this guy. He was now coming out of jail. And the feeling was just euphoric. I had changed history is how it felt. It felt so powerful to be able to take somebody out of the deepest, darkest hole. He was forgotten. He was done. He was a dead man. And be able to pull him out? A 27-year sentence was now officially vacated. And he was in a position to get out immediately. After all, he was in the same position now as was he as he was when the case started, when it was first charged, and he had been granted bail then. So now I'm walking back 15 feet to the table, and I see the client's face, and he's, he's just frozen. He's just frozen. He had no idea what had just happened, but I did. And he hadn't spoken a word to me during the entire hearing. I don't think I even spoke to him once. He didn't even sit next to me because he was useless. He was half brain dead at this point. And I simply leaned over and said, you're getting out. She vacated your conviction. And the guy was just stunned. He just couldn't stop thanking me, thanking me, thanking me. I ended up putting the investigator on the stand and he testified exactly as I said that he would, that he told the trial lawyer <clears throat> that all these witnesses were great, that one of them was dying, and then he needed to get that testimony done. And the lawyer claims he understood, but he never did anything to even try to speak to the witnesses. Nothing at all. And that was it. The client was let out of jail, a free man. The prosecutor ended up letting him plead to a lesser offense just to end the case. And I was sure I would have won it on retrial. But what was the point of taking a chance if there was a 3% chance I could lose and he would get life again? If you could get out, no more jail time, be done. That was it. That's what the client wanted. And I was happy to do it. And as we're leaving the courtroom, I mean, I'm on just such a high, the feeling of just... It's really just intoxicating, the feeling, to be able to do something like this. This is like my day, man. I have so many tough days, but who has a day like this? And as I'm walking out of the courtroom after it was over, the judge calls to me and asks me to come into her chambers. And I walked in, and the prosecutor and my people on my team were walking behind me. Because that's what happens when you talk about a case. You have to have everybody, both sides, in at once. She stops them and says, no, just want him. I'm not going to be talking about the case. I just want to speak to him. And I'm walking into the, her chambers. I, I, I'm sure I had a smirk on my face. I'm sure of it. I couldn't hide it because I was feeling smirky. You know, I had just really done the impossible. And before I even sat down, she just looks at me. We're both standing up. She's like, how did he find you? Meaning the defendant. I said, well, he just found me. I'm just a regular country lawyer from New York City. She starts to laugh. And she's serious, and she said, how did he afford you? <sighs> he had a public defender at trial, obviously. And I told her the truth, that the, the client's elderly mother had savings. She worked her whole life. She had savings, and she wasn't even aware that he had gone to trial until after he'd gotten convicted. He had never told her. I did it for somewhat of a reduced fee. I wanted a win. When you sense a win, your brain shuts off as a defense lawyer. And if you can believe it, you don't even care about money at that point. All you want to do is win. And think of this judge. She had already been reversed by the appellate court when she denied my initial motion. And after like less than an hour of an examination, she vacated the entire conviction. That's a fair judge at the end of the day. And that's what really separates us from the jungle, you know, from Iranians back to Iran. Because we have justice here. It may not be perfect, but it's the best justice in the world. And when I spoke to the press after, and it's in the Daily News and the Star Ledger, New Jersey Star Ledger, and their articles there, I said, quote, when I first wrote the cross-examination, I felt that I'd be walking him out of prison one day. <clears throat> and that's the truth. As I said on a prior podcast, you know when you write the cross-examination whether you can win that battle. And I was sure that I would. I was sure I was getting him out. I was convinced. Quote, another quote. This is the sort of case that makes people sick. The judge hates you. The prosecutor hates you. The public hates you. And other defense lawyers hate you. Defense lawyers would rather represent a white-collar fraudster who stole $100 million, Lickman said. But it shows that no matter how deep of a hole you're in, if you work hard enough, you can persevere. And that's really how I felt then, and it's how I feel now. In life, if you work hard enough... You can dig yourself out of any hole, but you got to be willing to work.
Next week on Beyond the Legal Limit, I'm going to talk about Rashawn Weaver. He's a 14-year-old boy who was charged and convicted on a guilty plea of murdering a Barnard College freshman. He's going to be sentenced this coming Thursday. And I want to talk about my feelings. I've never really discussed it in full. I've never done an interview on this case. I'm going to be discussing it here. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or BeyondTheLegalLimit.com. Feel free to send me emails with any questions, any criticism. I've been getting some. Um, I've got a listener in California named Stan who's been wonderful, actually has been giving me great uh, advice, which is why we did this longer session on the law today. And feel free to give me uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts as a review. If you don't, well, just forget about it. See you next week. Everybody.